There Do you, you have go. any text messages you want to read us? If you know the answer. So we've got a few text messages coming through here. Uh, one for bragging rights. Somebody wanted to point out, and this is a really important point in relationship to uh, true religion and biblical Christianity because we were talking in uh, about a minority of people in the United States right now who's super upset that Joe Biden has brought faith into his mm. life as a politician. Now, what will be dangerous if he brings faith into his legislation? Yes, yes. We want to have separation of church and state, um, but, you know, we appreciate it when our politicians speak about their faith and so forth. Uh, anyway, so wanted to point out that religion and true biblical Christianity are two very different things. Oh. So 4% of the population of the United States consider themselves to be atheists. Mm-hmm. But from which we could say, well, you know, the other 96% are, you know, followers of God. Well, there's a difference between a follower of God and a follower of religion. And I think that's a really important point right there. Um, and we could ask the question, how many of these people are actually, you know, really truly, um, you know, devoutly committed to serving God? The Bible says, um, you know, that by your by by your works, they will know you. Mm. Uh, do, 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 a whole bunch of things here. Um, yeah. Anyway, we will. I'll, I will get back to that a little bit further on because we have a huge Bible study that we need to uh, launch ourselves into here in just a moment, Mm. um, which is going to be really, really interesting, all about Assyria and Judah and Israel and what God is doing and what God can do and what God's power is. Absolutely. Okay, so let's jump into it. Um, We are in Isaiah chapter 36, and we've kind of jumped a long way from Isaiah uh, 12, 13, 14. (laughs) Through to chapter 36, which is a bit sad. There's a whole bunch of uh, really good things there. And I was just sort of thinking, you know, we should have just done Isaiah for a year rather than for a quarter. Or you could get into How do you do 66 chapters in one quarter? You don't. You do it by skipping a whole bunch of really good chapters is what you do. But anyway, needless to say, if we're going to be stay part of the 20 million movement, we need to... Um, we need to stay up with everybody else. And it kind of, uh, the Bible study has this interesting introduction. A gaunt man walks barefoot with his two sons. Another family has loaded all their belongings onto an ox cart pulled by an em- by emaciated oxen. A man leads the oxen while two women sit on the cart. Less fortunate people have no cart, so they carry their possessions on their shoulders. Soldiers are everywhere. A battering ram smashes into the city gate. Archers on top of the ram shoot at defenders on the walls. Hectic carnage reigns supreme. A little bit further along, a king sits grandly on his throne receiving booty and captives. Some captives approach him with hands upraised, pleading for mercy. Others kneel or crouch. And then it says, descriptions of... Descriptions of these scenes with the king begin with these words. Sennacherib, king of the world, king of Assyria. And they continue on with such expressions as, you know, sat on the, on the throne and the booty of the city of Lachish, which is not far from Jerusalem, uh, passed in review before him. Uh, and so these are stories that have been carved into reliefs, stone reliefs mm. on the walls of you know, Sennacherib's palace. It's actually pretty cool, to be honest. 
Yeah, okay. Oh, I mean, that we have the history. That we have the record of the super history. Super cool we have the that's, record that's of the history. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> All right. So uh, think about this, Minnie. You're going to be the empress mm-hmm. of, you know, a world empire and you're going to choose decorations for your walls mm-hmm. of your throne room and you're going to do a bit of internal decorating. And so what are you going to uh, draw or paint or carve into those walls? It wouldn't be that. People to be being honest. killed, soldiers everywhere, battering rams, city being smashed. It's crazy, eh? Genocide taking place. I wonder what it was about that that made sense. <laughs> like... I'll tell you what it was about that that made sense. Yeah, go on. If you were an ambassador from one of these countries, say Judah, for instance, mm. and you were called to uh, Nineveh. That's and true. into the throne room of Sennacherib, and you walked in there, and you took a little bit of time to sort of have a bit of wander around and look at the artwork. It might give you the impression that it might be a bad idea to rebel against the Assyrians. That's true. That was the idea. That was what it was all about. Yeah, I can see why that would be effective. To be honest, you'd be like, these people are crazy. And it was very effective. It was very effective for a long time. You know, these people they didn't muck around. Whenever anyone rebelled. The the crushing, uh, def- the, the the way that the rebellions were crushed was so wildly over the top mm. that it just boggles the imagination. And the reason that it was so wildly over the top was to inspire fear into everybody, so that nobody would stand against you. Nobody would ever rebel, mm. which did the job for a while. It kind of did the job and it kind of didn't because mm-hmm. it always created it also at the same time equally created while a tr- it created a tremendous amount of fear it created a massive amount of horror mm. and anger yes unprecedented anger that's true at what was taking place mm. Uh, so yeah, there was no loyalty there for those oh, no, that you were. Oh, no, absolutely. They were hated, yeah. like passionately hated. And, you know, um, you can read so many of these other uh, statements. You know, I cut their throats like lambs. This is, this is Sennacherib right here. So this is the guy that we're dealing with in chapter 36. He says, he states, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds harnessed for my riding plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Their testicles I cut off and tore out their privates like the seeds of cucumbers. That's Sennacherib. Mm. That's the guy that we're dealing with in this particular Bible study. That's what this guy proclaims that he longs to do to you. Just please rebel so that yeah. I can. Yeah. You know, go ahead, make my day. Mm. That's what Sennacherib is saying right here in uh, relationship to people who might think about rebelling against him. Okay, so chapter 36, a bit of historical background of chapter 36, very, very powerful 
um, Assyrian king Sargon II. I'm not sure whether I've got any statements from Sargon II. Let me just see if I've got one from Sargon here. These guys are all pretty much the same. You read one, you've read them all kind of thing, and they're all pretty uh, pretty full on. What have we got? Ashurbanipal, Tiglath-Pileser, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, another Ashurbanipal one. I don't have a Sargon one. And you know what? Oh, another Sennacherib one. I know this, this is ages, ages past, you know, when Israel first has a king. But you can kind of see why God was like, having a king is not going to be the best thing for you. I know how the world empires operate. Now, not all of them were that cruel, but there was a little bit of crazy in a lot of them. Yes, you absolutely. Know? And you've got a number of things that sort of uh, come together in, to, to form some of the craziness that happened in the mm. ancient world. One of them is that power goes to people's heads. Another is that, uh, and this was something that I was um, just recently researching, is substance abuse. Ooh. Now think about this for a moment. This is an interesting concept to think about that we often don't think about. We all know in today's world that if people abuse substances, drugs and so forth, mm. they blow their minds you know, and they go actually insane. Yeah. And substance abuse was widely practiced in the ancient world, you know, on levels that we can't even begin to imagine. I mean, Alexander the Great used to participate in drinking competitions. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. You know, these were competitions where his he and his officers would get together and they would have competitions to see who could drink the most. Mm. You know, you've got records of like, yes, we had a drinking competition the other night. 36 men died from alcohol poisoning. Whoa. That's you know? unhealthy. Oh, absolutely. And when you when you look at what they actually did when they went into battle, the level of PTSD that that would, would have accomplished. Mm. So, so you think about ultimate power. Yeah. Massive amounts of power, massive levels of PTSD, massive levels of substance abuse, plus the line between genius and insanity is a very fine line. Combine all those things together, it's no wonder that a lot of these rulers were actually quite insane. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they would do things like this, you know, because they've actually lost their minds. Mm. Uh, we can see how that works in, in our world today and we understand the mechanisms behind it because we understand what PTSD does. We understand what uh, how power can corrupt a person. We understand how substance abuse you know, can blow a person's mind. Combine all those things together and, yeah, look what you end up with. I mean, Adolf Hitler was a meth addict. Hermann Goering was um, addicted to morphine. Um, Napoleon was on... Um, opium, mm. you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think if we compare then, Joseph Stalin, yeah, if we compare the laws that God had given the people for how to live, particularly in this light of the ancient world, yes, what a contrast! What a contrast! Yeah, we just don't understand that. And, and, and I think this is the main point that I'm trying to drive out here is that when you look at the Constitution for Israel. And how the kings of Israel, God said, don't have a king, but if you do have a king, this is how he lives. Mm. He was to live a righteous life. He was to live a pure life. He wasn't allowed to be in, involve himself in any of this. You know, he wasn't, wasn't to number the people. He wasn't to build huge armies. He wasn't to raise massive taxes. He wasn't to go out and, you know, create massive empires. He wasn't to, you know, to persecute the, you know, the stranger, the foreigner that was in the land. Mm. Um, or outside of the land or otherwise, you know. 
Um, he wasn't allowed to, you know, be drinking alcohol and imbibing drugs. Yeah. The Bible describes it, you know, the use of drugs as being equivalent to idolatry. Oh. Pretty strong language. Yeah. And so, yeah, a massive contrast that you have there between um, the way that the ancient kings ruled and the ancient emperors ruled and how God told his kings to rule. Mm. Anyway, so this is Sennacherib. This is this is uh, the kind of this is a Syrian emperor. This is the kind of person that is ruling the world. Sargon II dies. It destabilizes the kingdom as it always did when an Assyrian king died. Whenever an Assyrian king died, there would be bloodshed mm. because there would be a bunch of people who put their hand up to be the next emperor. And the only way that they were able to succeed at that is by killing enough of the opposition to be able to seize power and enough of the other people who had also put their hands up who were usually their brothers. Yeah. You had to kill a lot of people and you had to be prepared to kill a lot of people and you had to be prepared to kill a lot of your own family members if you were ever going to be an Assyrian emperor. Mm. Talk about just family. Dysfunction in the family, hey? Like. Oh, levels you can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. Okay, so let's think about uh, you've got this massive empire. Uh, then you've got this micronation of Judah. Yeah. Now, before, so you've got a change of kings in Judah as well. Mm. You've got Ahaz dies. Um, he was dedicated to rebelling against God. Yes. And allying himself with the Assyrians. Hezekiah comes to power. Hezekiah is a righteous man a man who believes in God with all of his heart. Mm. And so Hezekiah comes to power and begins to reform the nation. So this is what's he's bringing the nation back to God. He's bringing the nation back to righteousness. He's bringing the nation back to holiness and purity. And he's got some major problems because the kingdom to his north of Israel has been wiped out. It's gone. That's a Syrian territory. Through his father's policy, he is now a client king of the Assyrian Empire. Oh, right. He has to pay taxes to the Assyrian Empire. And the taxes that they paid back then were not like, you know, we think of taxes today. It was basically protection money. Mm. It, was, it, was a, uh, it was kind of like, well, the, the ancient Assyrian kings were just large gangsters. And they're like, you pay us enough protection money and we won't destroy you. Which is kind of also connected to the religion at the time, right? That we appease the gods and they won't destroy us. Very much so. Mm. Very much so. And so Hezekiah, this is what Hezekiah inherits. Yeah. So Sennacherib is inheriting a kingdom that has just gone through, you know, a, a, a bloody moment of civil war and unrest and strife and he's had to kill a bunch of people to come to power. That's what Sennacherib has just gone through. Hezekiah has just come to power and he's like, well, we're paying protection money to the Assyrians. Uh, they have become, you know, we have allied ourselves to them against everything that Isaiah said, against everything that God said. Uh, we serve Yahweh, who is a powerful God, and yet we are a micronation. I mean, you look at the size of the nation of Judah. You drive a car from one side to the other of it in those days in half hour. Mm -hmm. You know, right across the whole nation, half hour's drive. You know, by the time that I get home, I would have crossed the nation of Judah. <laughs> and you've got the city of Jerusalem. It's a brute of a fortress. But... It's tiny. 
It's a tiny city. Mm. Yeah, it 20, 30 acres, something like that. It's tiny. Very, very small city. And so this is what this is what um, this is what Hezekiah is ruling over, and he decides that this is the time to stop serving the Assyrians and start serving God. And then, thus, we have our Bible study and our story for today. Uh, chapter thirty-six, verse one. What have you got for us? I'm just going to say a prayer before I read. Lord God, I just thank you so much that we have the opportunity to open your word together. Um, God, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and may we just understand um, the truth of who you are and more about who we are. Thank you for your goodness in hearing our prayers. Okay, Isaiah chapter 36 verse 1 says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Zanacharib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. I'm assuming I keep reading? Yeah, there's probably... Uh, a- Pretty simple, very small verse right there. Yeah. And we don't realize just, you know, the horror of what was going on. Mm. Oh, and yeah. some people ask the question, you know, he's attacked the fortified cities of Judah and, and, and conquered them. This is, this is not good, you know, because now you've got a righteous king and, and this righteous king has turned to God and God has let him down. Mm. But I think that there's a little bit of context that we need to take into consideration. First of all, the story hasn't finished yet. And God hasn't finished dealing with Sennacherib yet. Mm. But also you've got a nation with a whole bunch of fortified cities. You've got a nation that has turned away from God. And just because the king has turned back to God does not mean that the nation has turned back to God. Yeah. You've got the worship of God in the process of being reestablished in Jerusalem. You've got great rejoicing because of that and people are very excited about it. But that does not mean that after all of those generations of idolatry, everybody has just you know automatically turned back to God. And one of the other very powerfully defended cities that you had in Judah at that particular time was the city of Lachish. The ruins of that are still there today. Hmm. It's never been rebuilt since the Assyrians broke it down. Um, archaeologists have discovered amazing things in Lachish uh, from that you know the siege ramp that the Assyrians built is still there. Whoa! Yeah, the Assyrians were just the most amazing engineers, and when they wanted to build a siege ramp so that they could uh, you know push their siege engine up the ramp, mm. they built quality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that lasted two and a half thousand years. It's pretty good quality. <laughs> that's that's very high quality. Arrowheads, sling stones, just litter the ground. Mm. Layers of ash where the city has been, you know, burnt. Um, and, you know, one of the, I guess one of the most fascinating finds was a piece of, of pottery. And I can't remember the exact message, but I'll paraphrase it for you. Written on this piece of pottery were words where somebody had actually sort of um, picked up a piece of pottery and just used it as a... As a place to do, you know, as something to write on, mm. just to write a message. And this person was obviously a watchman who was in the hills of Judea. And in the hills of Judea, his 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 his, his job was to watch what was going on and report back to the cities. And he sent this piece of pottery with this message on it to Lachish to ask how things are going in Lachish. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because we no longer see the signal fires of this city, that city, the other city. And he's in his, and, you know, it's, the message has made it to Lakish, and we don't know whether it, a, a return reply was it ever received because Lakish was destroyed. But it's sort of like one of those messages that it's frozen in time at the time the events happen. And it's almost like you can feel out, reach, reach through history and shake hands with the people who were there and the horror of what was going on as they see there's no longer signal fires from that city or that city or that city and the horror of what was actually taking place in those cities as the inhabitants were just being completely destroyed. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. I did promise I'd get back to uh, some of these text messages here once we got a chance. And uh, this person raised an interesting point in relationship to uh, you know COVID and so forth in that we don't see with COVID what you see on uh, the movies with pandemics where you see people dropping in the streets, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a very good comparison with, say, the Black Death. If you look at the Black Death, you know, which which rages through Europe and you can go to Europe today and there are entire cities mm. that were abandoned and have never been rebuilt uh, and the ruins are just there to this day where every single person in the city died. Hectic, hey. Every single person died. And, you know, that's a pandemic on a scale that we can't even begin to imagine, which radically, radically changed the world Mm. um, as as we see it right now. But he says here, um, you know, I've never seen anything like anyone collapse on the streets as you see in the pandemic movies. I believe we're in a battle for our minds. Remember, as you believe, so shall you act. We truly live in the last days. I will respect those who have their concerns, and I think that's valid. Um, but uh, but don't think that the new world order will fool all people for all of the time. And so, yeah, interesting thoughts. Uh, if you've got thoughts on these kind of subjects, then let us know. Um, he's got some also some uh, points to make about Joe Biden, and it's early days. That's true, yeah. It's early days. We can only see what comes we are going to comment on his decisions as he makes those decisions, mm. and we've already commented on a bunch of them. Um, you know, particularly some of the really bizarre stuff like allowing biological men to compete in women's sports. I mean, it's just it's just bizarre to any normal person. That is really bizarre, but whatever. Let's get back to our Bible study, Second Chronicles chapter twenty-eight, verse sixteen to twenty-one. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 28, 16 to 21. Uh, Verse 16 says, At that time, King Ahaz of Judah asked for the king of Assyria to help. The armies of Eden had again invaded Judah and taken captives, and the Philistines had raided towns located in the foothills of Judah and the Negev of Judah. They had already captured and occupied Beth Shemeth, Ijalon, Gedaroth, Socho with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. The Lord was humbling Judah because of King Ahaz of Judah, for he had encouraged his people to sin and had been utterly unfaithful to the Lord. So when King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria arrived, he attacked Ahaz instead of helping him. Ahaz took valuables from the Lord's temple, the royal palace, and from the homes of his officials and gave them to the king of Assyria as tribute. But this did not help him. Yeah, pretty full-on stuff right here. Mm. Uh, And this is what was interesting. If you're a vassal king to the Assyrians, they don't mind if you fight amongst yourself. (laughs) 
you know, so if the Philistines come and attack you, it was like, well, what, what, what's that got to do with us? Mm. You know, you are paying us money so that we don't attack you. Yeah. We're not concerned about others. Others. If you. the Philistines want to attack you, well, you deal with that. You, you know, you're a small micronation. You're on the outskirts, you know, on the, on, the, on the far horizon of the Assyrian Empire. Why would we worry about that? Mm. But if you then turn around and say, well, yeah, you know what? We're not going to pay tribute anymore then. Yeah, we might come. And we might do something about it. And Hezekiah looks at the political situation when he comes to power. Assyria is a long way away. They are on the very outskirts of the Assyrian Empire. Mm. They are at the limit of the Assyrian Empire's reach. They are a micronation. And so maybe they'll miss a little bit of rent money. They won't miss it. Maybe that won't be, you know, because, I mean, their contribution is going to be very, very small compared to the major nations of the world. Imagine what Babylon was paying at this particular time oh, I, yeah. just to keep the Assyrians away. And so, you know, when, when, when Babylon is forking out trillions of dollars and you're supposed to be paying 100000 then maybe the Assyrians won't worry about that. Maybe Sennacherib, he's just come to power, he's, he's you know, got all these other issues he's got to deal with. Maybe he's distracted and maybe he won't notice it. And also... I think the biggest thing for Hezekiah was we have God on our side. Mm. Why do we need to worry about the Assyrians? Which is what King Ahaz never had. That's right. Okay, so let's go to where were we? Second Chronicles. Uh, let's go to Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two, verse one to eight. So chapter thirty-two now, first eight verses. Okay, so after Hezekiah had faithfully carried out this work, King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified towns giving orders for his army to break through their walls. When Hezekiah realized that Sennacherib also intended to attack Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military advisors, and they decided to stop the flow of the springs outside the city. They organized a huge work crew to stop the flow of the springs, cutting off the brook that ran through the fields. For they said, why should the kings of Assyria come here and find plenty of water? Then Hezekiah worked hard at repairing all the broken sections of the wall, erecting towers, and constructing a second wall outside the first. He also reinforced the, sh- the supporting terraces in the city of David and manufactured large number of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square of the city gate. Then Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of, that, because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. For there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encourage the people. Okay, so isn't there a contradiction in this passage? The fact that he's doing work to restore but saying that the that God's going to help? Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely. So he's mm. got, we've got God on our side, so what do we have to fear? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he does a lot of work here, doesn't he? Mm. And the great thing about you know this story here, it's the amazing thing about this. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can see all the work. Well, you can see a lot of the work that Hezekiah did. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Um, so you can go to the Gihon Spring, which used to run down the valley, and now no longer does because he tunneled underground and brought the spring into the inside of the city. So there's, so there's like so there's no water outside. Mm-hmm. It's not going to you know why should they have water when they come? And what's fascinating about that particular tunnel is for it to stay underground, it actually has to take a number, a whole bunch of curves to follow the, you know, so it gets around valleys and and and, and dips in the ground and so forth. You can't just cut that in a straight line. Mm. 
And so it follows the contours, but it follows those contours below ground and a long way below ground. You can actually walk through it. I've walked through it. That's cool. That's the best ever. It's one of those really (laughs) cool experiences that you do when you go to Jerusalem. Um, You get pretty wet doing it. It's about waist deep in places, I guess. Mm. But you walk through this tunnel and they were in such desperation Mm. to get this job done before the Assyrians arrived, they cut the tunnel from both ends. Oh, I've heard about this. And then met in the middle. Yeah. And nobody's ever been able to figure out how they actually how they that navigated right. mm. underground. So good. Oh, it's just <laughs> epic. And then you can go to another place where they have, you know, dug underneath and they've found, you know, the great wall that that that, that Hezekiah built, that second wall that the Bible talks about right there. Mm. You can find that second wall right there. You know, it runs underneath, underneath the uh, the current city and there's a few places where they've dug down and you can see the whole wall and it's just it's amazing. It's a very powerful fortification. So this was a lot of work though. A That's lot of work. what we're saying, right? A lot of work. So like. why do all that work when you have God on your side? Very quickly, can we have uh, this last verse here? Philippians 2, verse 13 and 14. I reckon we could. No, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Okay. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Um, Was dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Okay, so this is God working in us to be able to accomplish the work that we need to accomplish here mm. on this earth. God was within Hezekiah, working with him to build up the defenses of yeah. Jerusalem. This is God working with human beings. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Right now it is time for... for, for something. Something. Here it comes. Question of the day. All right, what's our question of the day, Minnie? So the question was, how long did the preparations take for um, King, wait, wait, um for Hezekiah? For, yeah, for King Hezekiah in knowing that King Sennacherib was coming. Okay, so this is an interesting story, and it's a little bit hard to really understand how long it took. We can see from some of the archaeological evidence that a lot of the work was done in a very short space of time Mm. uh, right at the end, but the indications also remain that there were preparations that were taking place for possibly over a 14-year period. Oh, that's huge. Okay, so this is is what you've got. You've got Sargon who's ruling, um, and Hezekiah comes to power in Jerusalem while Sargon is still ruling. There had been a revolt. Egypt was the Egypt was ruled by um, Ethiopians at this particular time, and sought to unify Egypt and then also to form alliances with all with as many countries as it could in Palestine in that whole in that whole region to form a buffer zone between themselves and the Assyrians because they were like the two big superpowers. And Hezekiah was invited to be a part of an Egyptian alliance against the Assyrians, which he declined under the advice of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 20, you find Isaiah walked around naked for like three years Mm. uh, because he was like, this is what will happen if you join an Egyptian alliance. You need to trust in God, not into the Egyptians. That They're like a bruised reed that will, if you lean on it, it's going to go through your hand. Mm. Um, And so 
this was what was taking place during. There were a number of nations that did ally themselves with Egypt and got smacked pretty hard because of that. There was also, during Sargon's reign, there were some major rebellions in the north. So Babylon under Merodach Baladan, they rebelled against the Assyrians. And they were able to maintain that rebellion for 12 years. And so, yeah, Sargon had his hands full. And this is one of the reasons why when Sennacherib comes to power and Sargon has had his hands full for so long, Hezekiah sees this opportunity as, okay, now's the right time for us to break free. And, of course, he's breaking free under the counsel of Isaiah. God is leading him. Mm. And so this is, this is the time in which he breaks free. And so that's in 705 BC. Mm. The indication is that he had quietly been arming his people, building his defenses, uh, strengthening his walls for about nine years previous to that. But now it becomes really important because he needs to be able to withstand a siege against the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were a professional army. Mm. And so this is when you have you know the tunnel being built and all those kind of things, um, which leads up to the attack which takes place in 701 mm. uh, uh, BC, which gives you about a four-year period of very, very intense activity. And we might look at that in our modern day and say, well, that's a fair amount of time. You can get a lot of work done in four years, but you've also got to remember that you're working with hand tools only. <laughs> yeah. So that's a little bit different, and you're working with a small population, very few artisans to take, it, take care of this work. Using hand tools only, um, you know, we could cut that tunnel through maybe in a month, but you've got to do that with picks, mm. Right. And you've got to be able to navigate underground. How do you do that? We don't know. Then you've got to carve out those stones that build the towers, build the walls, build the defences. You've got to find metal to make weapons out of. You've got to train those armies. So there's a lot of work that then this and so this is basically four years of total war. Yeah. The entire population dedicated to nothing other than preparing for the invasion of the Assyrians and a tremendous amount of that in preparation, we're going to find out, took place by them preparing their hearts to serve God. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.